Good morning. Everybody can be seated, please. I have a, uh, a friend who, as a new pastor years ago, uh, preached uh, or um, did a wedding. And um, he, during the course of the wedding, uh, preached a rather long message. And at the end of that, he realized he had never asked the congregation to sit down. So I am glad I at least got that out of the way. Let me say something. Um, it's been an interesting week as uh, we have prepared this service. Uh, Derek Coyle, as you know, um, has been sick and has been recovering. Tim has been on vacation. I have been on vacation. And um, yet, this service has been thrown together incredibly. If you take a look at page five of your bulletin, and this is all because of Derek Coyle and the Lord bringing things together, almost every single sentence supports the sermon that I'm going to give. And so, as you can see in our confession of sin, the middle part says, you constantly call us, but we do not listen. You ask us to love, but we walk away from neighbors in need, wrapped in our own concerns. That is going to be a main topic of our, of our message today. And then, as well, for by grace, Ephesians 2.8, you have been saved through faith, through faith only and not by works. And nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. I can't say it better than that. So, the title of this message as printed in your bulletin, is the irony of Christian freedom. And indeed, we will discuss the irony or the paradox of Christian freedom, and many of you may know where I'm headed with this, that our freedom of a Christian is ironically bound to a life of service to God and to others. Now get that. Our freedom as a Christian is paradoxically bound to a life of service to God and to others. And it is these others that we frequently walk away from with only concern for ourselves. But I am tempted to change the title of this message to a locus of love. That's locus, L-O-C-U-S, not a locus of love. Because we'll be discussing a locus of love as we wrap things up at the end of the message. But it's too late. The, the bulletin has been printed. And so the irony of Christian freedom, this is going to be. So let's go ahead and look at the text. And it is uh, at the top of page six of your bulletin. 
And this, uh, it, what's printed is Philippians 2, 1 through 4. Uh, but I am going to continue uh, after verse 4 down to verse 11. This is very familiar ground that we're on here. You may want to open your Bibles to Philippians 2 and follow along with me. So, Philippians 2, starting at 1. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being on the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests. Let me say that again. Let each of us look not only to our own interests, but also the interests of others. Now, continuing in verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset or attitude, some translations say, as Christ Jesus. What was his attitude? Who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on a cross. And therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you for the freedom we have in you through your grace. Open our hearts now to your word that you may show us the blessings you have for us through humble service to you and to others. In Jesus' name, Father. Amen. <laughs> I almost wish I had a Kleenex and could blow my nose before I go further. And Liz, where are you pointing? Under, okay, and Jim, turn off the microphone. Oh, well, this morning we're going to start with a bit of a history lesson, looking back at the birth of the Reformation. As most of you know, in 1517, Martin Luther nailed his 95 Thesis to the door of the Wittenberg Chapel. It also helped that he sent the same 95 Theses to his cardinal. The cardinal didn't have to come to the door he read them right there before him. And these were essentially complaints that built a case against the 
practice of selling indulgences. Essentially, most of us know what this practice was. It was a way of buying one's way out of purgatory by forgiveness from the Pope. Now, Luther was a scholar at the University of Wittenberg. He was not serving as a parish priest at this time. Luther was an incredibly erudite man. He was into the scripture, I think, like nobody else at the time. And he pulled things out of it that nobody else was. And these things that he pulled out were earth-shattering. They changed the course of history. But these 95 th uh, theses, the purpose of them was essentially to attack the selling of, an, of indulgences. Now, since this practice was endorsed by the Pope, he was accused of heresy. But as things happened in those days, there were political uh, ramifications as well, and especially when Frederick of Saxony, who is essentially the ruler of what we would call Germany today, or that, uh, that area, took Luther in and provided him protection. And thus, in the couple years after 1517, prior to his trial in 1521, there were several attempts to ease the tension. After all, not only was theology on the line, politics was on the line as well. And one of these emissaries that were sent by the Pope to try to uh, alleviate things, diffuse the tension, suggested to Luther that he should write a letter of reconciliation to the Pope. Just write a letter of reconciliation. This may avoid your trial and your excommunication. And so Luther did this. He wrote this letter, and instead of penning it, folding it, sticking it in an envelope, and sending it through the mail, he sent it to the printer to have officially printed. And some of you may know that the rise of the Reformation corresponds to the rise of the printing press. The printer in Wittenberg, got <clears throat> Luther's proof, read it, and knowing a bestseller when he saw one, published it for general consumption. And so Luther's letter is right here for us all to have. And let me tell you, it is entitled The Freedom of a Christian. I'm going to recommend this to you. You can pick it up on uh, the internet. Uh, <clears throat> it's a cheap little book. You can see it's just a little treatise. It was published in 1520. But what it does is it sets forth, remember, this life-changing, world-changing doctrine of justification by faith alone as opposed to justification by works. Now, <clears throat> this, as you know, was, became somewhat the cry of the Reformation. I'm going to briefly touch 
on justification by faith because it can't be divorced from where I'm headed. You see, I'm headed to, into some territory that we, as Reformed Christians, usually don't talk about. <clears throat> I'm headed to talk about works, works, works. Okay? And as you know from my uh, comments so far, I'm especially headed toward the work of serving one's neighbor. But that's down the way, and I'm briefly going to discuss how Luther gets there. Okay? This notion of uh, uh, justification or salvation, and if you're in the congregation or watching and you're not familiar with this term justification, I'm going to loosely, you theologians out there, don't punish me for this, I am going to loosely say that justification means making yourself right with God. How do we get made right before God? How are we made acceptable to God? Okay? Now, <clears throat> this notion that our acceptance before God was by faith instead of works flew in the face of conventional Roman thought. And there's a good reason for this. The church theology at the time was based on Aristotelian principles, which is Greek thought <clears throat> that a person's virtue, their standing before God, was dependent upon good works. Now, I must admit, that makes a lot of sense. Okay? It just makes a lot of sense. Everything in every sphere of life one is made righteous through works, not faith. Think about this. We're all watching the Olympics. I was on vacation. I missed a week of it. But the athletes in the Olympics are made righteous through their performance, not through their faith in the Olympic organizing committee. Right? Nobody is passing out gold medals for faith at the Olympics. On my job, I'm paid. In other words, I get my reward. In other words, I am made righteous by my work. If my boss were to give me an assignment and I looked at it for two weeks and he calls me back in and says, Hurlbut, how's that assignment going? Well, I haven't made any progress, but I have a lot of faith in the company. No progress, but a lot of faith in the company. Just wouldn't go anywhere. I would likely be canned. All right? Even our pastors. Don't you think about this? The session gives a performance evaluation to our pastors every year. It's not a faith evaluation. It's a performance evaluation. In every sphere of life, every, our righteousness is based on our performance, not upon our faith in the person organization or institution 
that is giving us our reward. <clears throat> now, this is a good thing in all of these arenas, but this is also generally the way that the Roman church saw justification at the time. It was based upon one's virtue. And this is what the world will tell us today, that our goodness makes us right and acceptable before God. And Luther knew this. He was deeply aware of this, personally aware of this. He had spent the majority of his life up until this time as a monk and as a scholar trying to work his way into God's favor, mostly through penance, mostly through acts of penance. And he found that every time he was almost there, a new sinful thought crept into his mind. And he was back again at the beginning, no closer to acceptance by God. But none of this, as you know, is biblical. Justification by works is fine in the Olympics and in the workplace and other places. But it is not biblically how we find acceptance or, is justified or are justified before God. Luther saw this. He saw something more. He saw it shining through scripture. Now, this is not a sermon on justification by faith. I am going to give two scriptures, though, that are proofs, texts of it, that Luther singles out in his treatise. And Romans 3, I think, sums it up best. As for you, and some of you may have this memorized, as for you, you are dead in your transgressions and sins, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. But because of his great love, God, who is rich in mercy, I love that God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. For it is by grace that you have been saved through what? Through faith. And this not from ourselves, for it's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. In Galatians 5, 6, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Is faith, not works, expressing itself through love. And believe me, we're going to see that works can be expressed through love. Don't get me wrong. Works can be expressed through love, but works expressed through love will not lead to justification or acceptance by God. So, in this little treatise, Luther breaks things up into threes. And essentially, 
the second half of the book, which is the explanation of justification by faith, is broken down into three sections, which is kind of, I don't know, convenient for a three-point sermon. So the first section is that justification or salvation by faith in Christ alone, not by works, is discussed, and we have just discussed that. And we're going to move on from that. It has been discussed because a discussion of Christian works requires a discussion of uh, justification by faith. The second part, which I'm going to get to in just a moment, is a discussion of the place of works as is expressed through sanctification, through what I call the daily grind of sanctification, through battling daily personal sin. And the third part of this little treatise is where we're headed. It's a discussion of the place of works through service to our neighbors and to God. So, let's move on to the second part. If we are justified by faith, why are we commanded to do works? This is exactly what the church asked. In fact, this is exactly what many ask today. If I'm justified by faith, why are works commanded? Good works, right? Luther addressed this, and I like the way he addresses it. He says, here we shall give an answer to all those who taking offense at the word of faith and at what I have asserted, they say, if faith does everything and by itself suffices for justification, why then are good works commanded? Are we then to take our ease and don't do no works, content with faith? And Luther responds, not so, wicked man, not so. He never pulled his punches, even when dealing with the Pope. Here, at this point, after justification, is where the work begins. Here is not the time for leisure. Why, after becoming justified by faith and gaining freedom from the law of sin, does Luther say that this is where the work begins? Because it is where the work begins. That work is the work of combating our personal sin through sanctification. Works flow as a normal consequence out of our justification, and we know that. And I don't want you to get confused here because we're moving on a road down to talk about service to our neighbors. But we need to discuss this everyday grind of sanctification. Why is it important? It's important because the world tells us it's not important. The world is open to accepting where we're going. The world is just fine if Christians want to serve their neighbors. The culture will give us an attaboy for that. We are appreciated 
for serving our neighbors. But the world does not accept good works, our good works, if it means combating personal sin and making our lives more Christ-like. Think about this. The world does not believe that my covetousness of my neighbor's belongings is a sin as long as I don't steal from my neighbor. They will say, if it doesn't hurt your neighbor, it's not a sin. Your, you know, your covetousness just doesn't matter. Go ahead and covet away. My response to that is it's only the 10th commandment. It's absolutely essential that we combat our covetousness. Nor does the world accept that my pride and arrogance is sinful. In fact, pride and arrogance is actually celebrated today. Very much so. Idolatry, my prioritizing things before my love of God, is terribly sinful. Perhaps the sin. But the world will say, don't worry about that idolatry. What are you talking about? It's only the first commandment. Sexual immorality doesn't exist anymore in the world. My lustful thoughts, they're just thoughts. They don't hurt anybody, and therefore they're not sin. Your work, Bruce, your work, congregation, to combat these type of sins is not necessary, says the world. Pornography? Not a problem. Not a problem. This is what I call the, the daily grind of sanctification. And before we can talk about serving our neighbors, we need to understand that these works, these works of combating our personal sin and becoming more and more Christ-like are very important. And Luther spends the whole second section of his book discussing this. He discusses it from the standpoint of the difference between the inner or the justified soul and the outer man, the sinful. Now, that discussion is way beyond the scope of this message. But it is something that we deal with, and it is something that is extremely important in our Christian growth. Jesus addresses these sins head on in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder and anyone who murders shall be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Doesn't take murder, which the world will condemn. It simply takes anger in Jesus' case. Arrogance. And again, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks upon a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, 
gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than to lose your whole body and throw it into hell. How many times have you heard this? I love this one. Honey, you can look, but don't touch. You can look, but don't touch. It's pretty common in our society today. You can look, but don't touch. Jesus says, no, you can't even look at another woman or ladies at another man. Lustfully looking is a sin. That's the daily grind of sanctification, which we become more Christ-like through. Look at what Paul says in Romans 7. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law working in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Paul is saying this. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let, yet, let's not confuse these particular good works, combating our sin, with justification. Remember, they are not a part of justification. We are justified by faith, and that is a gift from God. Luther says this, he says, yet these works that I've just discussed are not what justifies someone before God. He does them out of spontaneous love to the service of God, looking to no other end than to what is well-pleasing to God, whom we desire to obey dutifully in all things. Now, I want to stop right here, and I want to say this. If there's anybody in the congregation or viewing online who has a misunderstanding of the relationship between works and faith as it relates to your salvation, will you please see me on the way out? Absolutely serious. See me on the way out. If you're uncertain of your standing before God, as it's based on faith or works, see me. The reason I ask this is there's so many people today who believe that it is being good that gets them to heaven or makes them right before God. It's a very common notion. But biblically, we're saved by believing in our hearts that Jesus is Lord. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whomever believes in him should not perish, but shall have eternal life. And truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Hears my word and believes God and believes him has eternal life. So now we're going to turn to this third part of Luther's little book and discuss neighborly love. Now, Luther is very specific here. After discussing the issue of combating sin in our personal lives or this conflict between the inner and the outer man, 
he turns to the topic of serving our neighbors. He says this, For man does not live for himself alone in this mortal body. Now remember, he's been discussing the mortal body. Man does not live by himself alone in that body in order to work only on his own account, but also for all men on earth. We live for others and not for ourselves. Jesus constantly preached that we, his followers, should have eyes and actions turned towards our neighbors. Think about this in the parable of the sheep and the goats. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, you took care of me, and I was in prison, and you visited me. To this, Luther once again reiterates that service to our neighbor does not buy us salvation. He keeps hammering this. This is a book about salvation by faith. Hardly a page goes by when he doesn't come back to the fact that works don't justify us. And he says, yet a Christian has no need of these works of justification and salvation. I'm sorry. Yet a Christian has no need for these works for justification and salvation. But in all his works, he, he ought to contemplate this thought alone. Okay? Now, this is what the Christian should contemplate, according to Luther's The Freedom of a Christian. The, that he may serve and be useful to others in all that he does having nothing before his eyes but the necessities and the advantage of his neighbor. That's pretty big stuff. Think about it. What Luther is saying that we should have one thought, one, one thought alone. And that is service to our neighbors. This brings us to our scripture, Philippians 4, 1 through 11, and the importance of putting our own interests aside for, for, <clears throat> for the interests of others. And this Philippians 4, 1 through 11 is essentially Luther's proof text for this argument that he's making on the significance of service to our neighbors. We read it earlier, and I'm going to read a couple verses again. Okay? Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but to those of others. This is the irony or the paradox of Christian freedom. In verse 1, Paul describes the blessing of our union with Christ. We are saved through faith. We are no longer bound by the law. We are totally freed by the blood, the precious blood of Jesus. Totally freed. But as part of our freedom, we're inextricably bound to serve, other, <clears throat> to serve God and to serve others. Luther sets forth this paradox very simply for simplifying simple-minded folks like me, who says this, 
In order to point out an easier way for the common folk, me, I am proposing two themes concerning freedom and servitude. The Christian individual is a completely free Lord and subject to none. We're totally free. And the Christian individual is completely dutiful servant to all. It's the paradox, the paradox of Christian freedom. I will suggest that serving others comes in two flavors. We can do it in two ways. There's what I call in reach. We can reach into the church and serve members of the church. And there's, of course, outreach. We can serve others who are not Christian. Regarding in reach, this is what Jesus said. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, how many of us here grew up singing, they will know we are Christians by our love, by our love. They will know we are Christians by our love. This type of sacrificial love should characterize the church. It should characterize this church. I won't go into my testimony at length, but some of you may know it. My testimony is one of being sucked in by God's overwhelming love into a particular congregation, a community of faith. I didn't go to that church seeking to become a Christian and being made anew in Christ. In fact, I was trying to purposefully avoid a relationship with God. But God serendipitously pulled me in. He used the love of this community and my life was changed. Now, how can we engage in inreach around here? I was walking by the nursery the other day and a, a couple weeks ago and I kind of stopped in my tracks. There serving in the nursery was one of our new members. One of our new members. In fact, I'm not even sure she is a member. She may just be one of these committed non-members. And so I asked her, what are you doing serving in a nursery? I was so pleased. And she said this. She said, that's what I'm supposed to do. That's what I'm supposed to do. I can serve here while the parents are worshiping over there. It's the smallest of things. We need nursery workers. I'd encourage all of you to be a worker. Even those who don't want to. Even those here who don't want to. I would encourage you to put aside your own self-interest for the interest and serve in the nursery. Another couple here at Covenant is here every time the doors are open. Now you hear this, it's a cliche. He or she is here every time the doors of the church are open. But this particular couple is here serving. Here serving. In the kitchen. Not just the wife, the husband's in the kitchen as well. On the missions committee on men's ministry, 
especially serving the elderly. They don't have to do that. They don't have to at all. But they have a mindset of humility and are putting our interests over their own. There's a lot of examples of serving in this way here. Praise God. Now the next category of service is outreach. And I think it's best summed up in the parable of the Good Samaritan. And I won't go into length about the Good Samaritan. But the priest and the Levite, the priest and the Levite, passed up the beaten man on the roadside. The Samaritan showed him mercy. And Jesus said, that the Samaritan is the one who showed neighborly love, service to his neighbor. Our neighbor, as it regards this particular work, is both our church member and those far outside the church. Okay? I have a friend who grew up in this church. He's a young man. After leaving home, this young man got caught up in profound addiction. And he spent the last couple of years dealing with this addiction, dealing with his family. And he's on the road to recovery. As a part of the recovery program, he regularly cuts the hair of homeless men. On days that he could be out, pursuing his own interests, recreation, and the like. He's given haircuts to people he doesn't know. He doesn't have to be doing that. He's doing it out of humility, putting the interests of others first. Most of you know Jim and Suzanne Lewis sitting in the congregation today. Suzanne shared with this congregation that she had an abortion when she was a young woman. But through her relationship with Christ, she has been healed of the emotional pain from that experience. Today, Jim and Suzanne serve others in the deeper still ministry, in the deeper still ministry, which is a healing ministry to women and families who have experienced the same thing. They're putting others' interests before their own people they don't know, but they want to share the healing touch of Christ with. They don't have to be doing that, but in humility, they're putting people's, other people's interests before their own. The list could go on and on. It doesn't have to be publicly noteworthy. In fact, I'd say most, it's not publicly noteworthy. But service to neighbors near and far should be works that flow from our justification. And so I'll say this. I'm going to get back to this odd little turn of a phrase that I started with today. The church should be a locus of love. No, I didn't say locust. I said locus. It should be a point, a location, a destination of love. The definition of locus is a place on a continuum where it happens, a place on a continuum where it happens. Where what happens? Where love happens. Through inreach and outreach, love being exhibited through service to others. 
And so when people visit this church and meet us and listen to the sermons and participate, they should walk out of this place and they should say, this place is a locus of love. We're coming back next week. Heavenly Father, make us servants who put the interests of others before our own. Let us firmly gaze on your example of humility, even to death on a cross, that it will be a light to our lives as we engage others. We lift this up in Jesus' name. Amen.